You're listening to episode number 15 of the Boys Build Better podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about boys in speech. Welcome to the Boys Built Better podcast. I'm Jessica, a mom of three boys who is just trying to do things better. I'm coming to you from Fort Collins, Colorado, where I live with my husband, our boys, and a whole lot of four-legged friends. I'm here to share my thoughts on raising boys in today's world, find answers to your parenting questions, and chat with experts about building happy, healthy boys. Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining me. I'm really excited about today's episode. We're talking about speech. Speech kind of keeps coming up as one of those things that boys may be delayed in, and I just wanted to chat with a speech and language pathologist and talk about boys in speech and how us parents can help support speech development, how to identify delays, and just learn a little bit more about speech in general. So today we're interviewing Sarah Armstrong, a speech and language pathologist with over 22 years of experience. So let's cut on over to the interview. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hey, I'm great. How are you doing today? Good. It has been a long time. It's nice to talk to you. You as well. Uh, I like to start with an icebreaker, uh, and I feel like I have this classification now for for parents who have children that are older than mine that they must really know what's happening and have some great advice for for us parents who have younger kids, because your kids are all teenagers now. They, they are. I have a 17-year-old, a 16-year-old, and a 13-year-old now. So, so I, all teenagers. I would love to know maybe some words of wis- wisdom about having something about maybe having younger kids versus older kids or having three kids. You have three kids. So so we just need like a parenting gem. No, no pressure. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's funny because... Um, as much as you think you're ready to be a parent, you're never ready to be a parent. And even though I work in a field where I'm supposed to be an expert in child development, um, all of that seemingly goes out the window when they actually belong to you. So um, parenting gem. Um, my biggest parenting gem, I think I learned, and perhaps I learned it by child number three, um, because back in the day they told us that three was the new two. Um And uh, I always thought I wanted a fourth child. And then I had my third child. And I'm like, no, I'm good on this zone defense. But um, I think the thing I've learned the most is don't sweat the small stuff. And um, if if, um, you're struggling with your kids learning their ABCs or to read or to write or whatever it is, that all seems to come with time. Um, But teaching those kids, and it kind of sounds cliche to do the right thing always, even when the right thing isn't the easy thing. Um, We started telling our kids that at a really, really young age, even when we had people saying, they don't understand what you're saying. I don't know why you're telling them that. Um, But I find now as teenagers, even though they all have their moments and they want to drive me absolutely up the wall sometimes, they all come out with those things. Like, I knew this is the right thing to do. Um, So that's it. You the, the, the days when they're younger seemed a lot longer than they seem now. Um, and the years certainly do get shorter. So, uh, you'll make it, you will make it through with some patience, um, and consistency. That's, that's the biggest thing. So, um, and they really will all eventually get along. At least I keep telling myself that now. So, oh my, there you go. My, my, (laughs) all of them getting along seems like really far away from, from me. But I, I love that you said that. I feel like, and this is that I have no, uh, factual evidence to back this up. Um, but maybe I've been interviewing people now for Boys Build Better for over six months. And it seems like this idea that, that, kids as a person um, versus who kids are academically or what they could possibly achieve is is something that people are really considering now. I mean, you have teenagers, so you've been considering it for a long time, but I like that you said that because I think I don't, there's there's so much stuff about mental health going on now, and I just think that that there is a there's this piece that is equally as important as education and all of that, and so... I think that's a good I reminder. I completely agree. I think that, um, you know, we as 40-somethings remember when we were in school um, and just, you know, kids are always seeking approval. Um, but we're also in a society that's placing such heavy demands at such an early age. Um, and considering a child's development, they're often not ready for it. 
Um, and we're realizing, I think, over the past five years, especially that that the kids' mental health through all of these things um, is as important, if not more important, at times. Um, you know, I'm not saying to treat them as snowflakes, but I'm saying to say when they're really stressed out or they seem like they're stressed out or they're telling you they're stressed out, they, they really probably are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, kids all learn at different paces and that's okay. So, I mean, I see that a lot, especially with boys. Boys pick up on things just a little bit slower than girls sometimes. I mean, I can't tell you, um, you know, being in a middle school, how often I hear out of teachers, well, we all know that boys mature, you know, less quickly than girls do, and you know, they catch up later, and we get all those kinds of things. Um, and while, again, that's not my area of expertise, I see it on a daily basis. So, Well, and you, uh, this kind of leads into the next question I was going to, I'm going to ask you, can you, you know, for people who do not know you, can you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about more about yourself. One of the things that I know about you is that you actually have two boys and one girl. So you also have, you know, some probably anecdotal evidence to back that put up <laughs> that up. I, I, yes, I do. So, um, I am a speech language pathologist. I have been an SLP for 22 years. Um, I have, uh, worked in a variety of settings. I actually started my career doing uh, birth to three, which is early intervention, um, up in Maryland. Um, and I, I really, through that time, spent a lot of time watching early, early childhood development. Um, Since that time, I've been in private practice. I've been in the school system. And I uh, generally work with um, children from uh, right now. I work with ages 11 through 16. But I've spent a lot of my career working um, from preschool to the age of 21. Um, So really just working on speech and language, um, social communication, um, those kinds of things that you see. Um, having three children, yes, there is a, uh, I, I've had the gamut of um, children, not only boys versus girls, but, uh, you know, we're all into labels these days for things about gifted students. Well, I have a gifted student, I have a high achieving student, and I have an average student um, that all have their unique traits. So it's um, really interesting for me to see um, how all of this information that I've you know, learn through the years, be applied in my own real life situation. Uh, and one of the things you said I found so interesting, which I definitely want to make sure we talk about, is that you, as a speech and language pathologist, you have worked with um, kids up to 21. I think that's really interesting because I don't think that's what people think of when they ta- think about speech and speech development, that it that it is is sort of an ongoing thing. So um, we'll get to that for sure. But why don't we talk about... Um, you're a speech and language pathologist, and that may mean nothing to some listeners. They may have no idea what that is. Can you explain um, what it is that speech and language pathologists do? Sure, and I think that, that that's a really great question because um, usually if parents have um, really come in contact with SLPs often, it's in schools, and you know we're called the speech teachers. And Um, While one of the things that speech pathologists do is help students with speech, really, um, we are trained to work with, um, you know, preventing, diagnosing, um, and treating speech, language, social communication, swallowing disorders, um, things like fluency. Um, We even do things um, in older years uh, on accent reduction. Um, There are speech pathologists that do work Uh, with older people who work on oral rehabilitation, which is if somebody loses their hearing, they they help them learn how to read lips, let's say, or function when their hearing um, isn't as it used to be. And uh, speech pathologists do work very closely with a lot of other therapists. We work with occupational therapists. We work with physical therapists. We work with counselors. Really look at treating a whole child because Um, you know, speech doesn't occur in a bubble. Children, if they're left alone, if they were just left alone in the room, would not acquire speech. Um, But it's a part of their whole being. Speech is a really interesting blend of a fine motor skill because you have to learn how to move your mouth correctly while taking in all this information, which is where the language comprehension comes in, and synthesizing it all to make it all work. So, um, you know, I think that when you're looking for a speech and language pathologist, um, people think it's just because 
it's just because their um, their kid can't say their R's or they're not saying their S's. Or in cases where um, children are younger, I, I do get parents sometimes are just concerned that their child is not talking as much as another child might be. And, and knowing those those stages of what they really should be doing, um, especially, you know, in, in this age of where, you know, everyone's comparing their kids to everybody else, uh, it can cause a lot of anxiety for parents. And so part of my job is also to really educate parents on what's appropriate um, and what's not. And then when it comes to therapy, um, looking at other things that, you know, might need, um, a child might need help with if, um, if speech isn't coming along the way it would traditionally. Well, and I want to talk a little bit about those stages. You mentioned some speech stages, but before yep. we do that, mm-hmm. can you, you kind of broke what a speech and language pathologist does down into all of these different mm-hmm. kind of things that you can work on. But I want to, can you kind of give me some more information about maybe the difference between speech and language specifically, since that's in your title? Sure. <laughs> um, so when we think of speech, um, speech has to do specifically with your verbal output, how it coming, how it, it's coming out of your mouth. So sound production, how sounds go together. Um, you know, I, I think the, the best way I explain this to parents sometimes when they, they try to understand. So when we're looking at the speech aspect, if you think of old school uh, Elmer Fudd in cartoons where everything was the wabbit, you know, that pesky wabbit. We all knew that Elmer Fudd was saying a rabbit. We also all knew that he couldn't say his R sound. So in the most traditional sense, the speech development has to do with the sound development and also has to do with when when kids um, say words the wrong way that we all think are so cute, knowing whether, um, you know, that's just a natural part of a speech process uh, or what we call phonological development. That's the speech uh, side of speech development. Um, when we look at language development, we're looking more from that comprehension side. You know, does my child follow directions? Um, you know, can can they go upstairs and get their shoes if I ask them, or do I have to break it down? And then later in school, um, it's tied also auditory comprehension. If you if you hear me say it. Can you do it? And that's also tied to reading comprehension because reading and and speech and language actually go together. If you read something, can you tell me what you just read? Could you answer questions about it? And then language really brings us into that higher level of development when I was talking about synthesizing things to come up with reasoning skills. Um, So it really is, they're they're tied together, they're different, but they're not. Um, Because if I ask your child, can you make this sound? And they they don't, you know, if I say make a D and they go duh, and they they look at me and go buh, I have to decide, well, did they understand what I was asking them? Or did they they really just not know how to make the sound? Or is it both? So um, hopefully that gives you a little bit of a speech versus language. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... I think that's that's just good to know. I mean, we're you know we've got parents listening to this this show, and I think when you talk about kids in speech, I think most people think about just the the sound production piece of it, and that that there is this language piece is is probably something that a lot of parents haven't even considered. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about these develop the stages of development? Maybe just give us kind of an overview of that. Sure. I, I'm, and, and there, there is obviously a very large gamut, but if just looking at the basics, I mean, and, and I, if I just go from a very early stage, um, most parents think about, you know, well, they always talk about when did your child say their first word? And, you know, it's usually around one year of age, so obviously some kids a little earlier, some kids a lot, a uh, little later on what we would just call, you know, that average continuum. Um, but, but speech actually starts with babbling. And, and actually, I would tell you that language starts at the same time. This is when your child makes all those cute cooing sounds that we think of, or that you hear them start like putting whole screams of like da, 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 or, you know, whatever they're doing. And they're not really words, but they're playing with sounds that they're actually hearing out, um, you know, in their environment. And then the language part comes in that, you know, they're babbling or we'll make a sound back to them that they make and we give them a second to wait to see if they'll do it back. And that's really the first stages of communication. Um, you know, engaging their eyes to look at you. They're, they're watching everything you do. 
Um, so that's real early infant stage. And then we get to that stage at, at around one year of age where they're starting to say words and they're usually those nouns. They're naming everything in their environment. So usually why we see dada come first most of the time and mama and, you know, and it might be doggy or the dog's name or some semblance of their sister's name or brother's name or whatever it would be. My son couldn't say his sister's name and that's how she got the nickname. Her name's Emily and he could only say Emmy and she's been Emmy ever since. Um, so we see that. And then I get a lot of questions from parents, but when are they supposed to be putting words together? Well, um, the milestone has typically been at the age of two. Um, although certainly we do see see children that put words together earlier than that. It depends on, you know, just inherently the child's um, brain and how it works. Um, and sometimes it's the environment that they're in. Um, but really from 12 to 18 months, we kind of call it a zero to 50 word stage just to give, uh, you know, parents a idea. And then from 18 months of age to two, uh, to two years of age, we really see a, a big jump with that maybe 50 to 200 words. And again, Every child develops differently. So some parents be like, oh, they said way more words. And then I have other parents that say, oh, they're not even close. But that general age. And then once you hit two, those two words together and two very quickly usually becomes three and four words together. Um, a lot of times you'll hear kids once that they're three years old, they're putting words together and you can maybe only understand them 80% of the time. And that's perfectly okay because they are still learning all those things that go in our filler words that we take for, for granted. Maybe they don't know how, uh, you know, a, a verb changes in conjugation, especially with the English language. Um, and then from there on, um, you know, there's just a lot of changes with vocabulary development, the um, complexity of their language, how they put um, two sentences together to make one bigger sentence. Um, and, that's where you see a lot of the language parts come in. And that's, again, what I talk about, that that, that cohesive synthesizing of, of I thought about something and I'm going to tell you, but now I'm going to listen and respond. So that really, you see a lot of that get more mature between the ages of four and five. All right. So now this is the million dollar question on a show about raising boys, because yep. anytime I have my sister's son is in speech therapy. Um, I've got a couple great f friends who's got who've got boys in speech therapy. And um, so often these parents are told, oh, yes, boys develop speech later. Um, there's all these kind of ideas around boys in speech. So I am here to ask you whether or not that's true. <laughs> and if it is kind of what are the differences between boys and girls in speech development? So I would tell you that the research shows that, um, it, especially from a uh, sound production, I'm talking specifically how you make different sounds, that um, even our standardized tests um, give slightly different age norms for boys producing sounds versus girls, and with boys being slightly later. But I would stress slightly later. We're not talking like years later. We're just talking, you know, months later. Um, so if, if a sound, you know, develops in a, in a R is a good example. R's, generally speaking, let's just say, like I'm talking about the R sound, right? Um, you can hear them at four years of age. Um, but the, the norm sample is really seven uh, for, for most kids to have that sound. But um, on a continuum, the expectation for boys to have that sound is slightly later than girls. Um, from a speech standpoint, um, I think a lot of it has to do with, um, and again, I have not personally conducted research in this area. I can only speak of what I've seen through the years. Um, I would easily say that 80% of my clients are boys. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in private practice, easily 80% were boys. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the exposure that boys are given versus girls. And we've taken a, a note of this through the years that, um, especially when you get into stereotypical play, let's just say, you know, boys do a lot of running around, rough and tumble, um, playing tag. Um, you know, you go on a playground on any given day and the boys are running around and, you know, the girls could be sitting down having a tea party or, or doing whatever they're doing. Um, there is a lot of um, environmental factors that can go into that that speech component. Um, 
and I, I think it would be unfair to say there isn't a, isn't a difference, but I, I get very upset when I hear, well, just boys just talk late because taking that kind of wait and see attitude, um, isn't really beneficial because there are plenty of, of boys that don't talk late. Um, it has really to do with the kind of language enriched environment that they're in. That's really interesting what you said, because it sounds like you are acknowledging that, yes, that is, is seems to be the case, mm-hmm. but it is not uh, a reason to make it okay and not seek out help, perhaps. Right. I think it's even more fair to say that um, in the early years, especially, um, you tend to see, and I'm talking at between ages two to five, we see a lot more boys in speech therapy. Um, and it's usually, um, you know, and I'm talking about, about kids that really do seem to be comprehending just fine. It's just the, their output of speech isn't as much. Um, I I can't tell you how many times I've had parents saying, oh, I didn't even know you could say that. Um, and it just had to do with the expectation of what you were trying to teach them. Um, so I can't emphasize enough that that exposure is so important. I just think naturally sometimes within environments, and you do see a difference between the first child and, and you know the third child, or sometimes the first child and the seventh child. Um, it's it's a very interesting thing to look at um, in terms of where their their skills are. Um, so it's it's just a very it's a very the word I'm looking for. It's just very difficult to say without a doubt, like there, there is absolutely no difference because there clearly is. But at the same time, um, you know, there are things that people can do to help their son's language go at the same pace as, you know, their daughters or their nieces or whoever it might be. And we're going to talk about some of those things that you you can do to kind of boost speech. But before we get there, yeah. can we talk about kind of this identifying a delay or how, you know, you know, you had said like, okay, well, if we've got uh, a boy, you know, not necessarily knowing whether or not that's a delay or maybe it's environmental. So when do we as parents um, kind of know there's an issue? What are some signs that, that you should have your child assessed? So I think it's, it's um, very important that you keep an open, an open dialogue with your pediatrician about what your child is doing. I will say pediatricians these days are very good about trying to hit um, major milestones, uh, you know, with parents about what their kids are doing. Um, I, right off the bat, if your child is an infant and you're really not hearing them babbling, um, that's definitely for me would be a sign to say, Hey, you know, they're not making any sounds. I kind of feel like they should be making some sounds at this point. Um, that doesn't mean you should, you know, panic if they're, you know, they've made some sounds and then they're not saying words at one, uh, because again, some kids will just develop a couple months later than that. Um, but certainly I look for our, um, even if they're not making sounds, they should be making eye contact with you at an early age. Um, I really um, always say a big sign is um, comprehension because I always want to, I, I, as a speech pathologist, always have more concern when when, um, children are not showing signs that they understand basic commands um, more so than they're not talking as much as, you know, their, their neighbor's kid. Um, So that would be a red flag to me. You know, if they are up and walking Um, and even if they're 18 months old and you tell them, go get your shoes, they should be able to do that. Um, so comprehension is a big thing for me. Um, by the time you're looking 18 months to two years, I mean, even if they're putting one word, um, down, if every word you hear out of them is just a basic noun at 18 months, um, you know, that they don't seem to be picking up any new words, um, that would be something I would say, go ahead and, you know, at least go in for a consult with a professional to see what they have to say. Um, and the other part of the side of this is you also want to make sure your child can hear. So when, once you brought this up to your pediatrician, they might look in your child's ears and say, oh, there's fluid. Well, fluid in the ears, even if it's not infected, there are some, some kids that just have fluid all the time. And that can impede speech development. Because if you think about what it sounds like to try and talk underwater, that's what it sounds like for a, a child who has fluid in their ears all the time. 
Um, so those are the kinds of things that I really, you know, for me would, would red flag it. And certainly, um, you know, by the age of two, if your child is showing no interest in putting words together, um, or they just sort of seem to be off talking to themselves, that would be a sign to me, like we need to, to see what's going on. Um, I also, as children progress, you know, because a lot of people don't really think to realize this, you know, between ages, uh, up until kids are two, because they say, oh, they're so busy learning to crawl, or they're so busy learning to walk. And, um, you know, that takes effort, because that's a motor skill, just like speech is a motor skill. Um, So they don't really seem to worry about anything until their child is walking. And then all of a sudden, they're like, why isn't he talking? Um, So, there are those, those times that you see that, but I'd say probably my biggest red flag to say you should absolutely have your child assessed is if your child has words and then seemingly loses them. Um, like you were like, gosh, you used to say these 10 words and then you hear nothing. And I'm not talking for a day or, you know, a couple of days I'm talking. It's like, suddenly you realize it's a week and they're like, he hasn't said a thing. He's only said one word and he used to have all these things. That would be a a big reason for me to seek professional um, input on what's going on. And uh, that process, just for parents who might not know where to go, the best place to start with something like that would be your pediatrician. Is that true? It would be your pediatrician. Um, Usually, um, especially in, I I am very pleased that, um, that our profession has really worked very diligently to educate pediatricians um, on these kinds of things. But you go to your pediatrician and say, you know, I'm really concerned he doesn't seem or she doesn't seem like she's talking as much as, you know, she should. Um, and, and really not sugarcoating it, like being very honest, like I have only counted these five words or he used to say these 10 words and now we're not hearing any of them. Um, they can kind of do a quick assessment and they will refer you to a speech pathologist for an evaluation. Um, you know, sometimes we still do have challenges where there are um, people that just say, well, boys talk late. I mean, for me, if you as a parent really have have a feeling, even if it's there's no harm in going to get an opinion, because even if you don't have anything to worry about, it'd be better to have somebody who is knowledgeable in this area say, yeah, um, you do. And if if you don't feel like you have the ability to go to your pediatrician at this point in time for whatever reason, um, there are, you know, in this wonderful age of Google and the internet, um, you know, you can go on and research speech language pathologists in your area or therapy clinics, or really throw a question out on Facebook, um, to get other parents' opinions about it, because, um, that is a a wealth of knowledge. And there are so many, um, groups that are very specific to areas of the country or, you know, even your neighborhood that could give you the name of somebody they would recommend. Um, The other part of that is if your child is under the age of three, I believe at this point, 49 of the 50 states have early intervention programs, which um, you actually um, are accessible through usually um, your local school system. So you can make as a parent a self-referral into that. Um, And many of those programs are completely free. Some of them are on a sliding scale, Um, but you have the ability to get an assessment Um, It's your taxpayer dollars at work through your local school system, even if your child is under the age of three. And one thing that came up while you were talking um, that I just wanted to kind of throw out there, and I actually mentioned this in the last episode, was kind of I have a tendency to wait if I feel like something's wrong with myself, right? I'll I'll Mm -hmm. put off going to the doctor. Can you talk a little bit about how important it is to get access or help early, or does that make a difference? Um, it does. I mean, and I will tell you, the research shows that the earlier a child can get intervention, um, the the more likely they are to have um, have more success long term. Um, it's because part of it is not just, you know, helping to improve a child's language. But the other part is when you when you take that wait and see attitude, habits start building that then, you know, you have to work on basically undoing Um I go back to speech. If you allowed your child to say their, you know, T or S sound wrong for eight years, it's going to be really hard to fix it, um, you know, as opposed to getting help with it when they were maybe three, three or four years younger than that. Yeah. Um, so I can't stress enough that 
that not taking a wait and see attitude um, is so important because especially, you know, in this age, I know that um, a lot of parents have questions, especially in this informed age of, you know, could my child have autism? The instance of autism in boys is so prevalent. Um, and all the research shows that um, if, if that's what's going on with your child, that early intervention um, and therapy um, at an early age produces a much more positive outcome long term. Well, and let's talk a little bit uh, maybe about that, but also um, the uh, our, our last episode was about dyslexia and um, one of, in terms of kind of keeping an eye out for, for is your child dyslexic, um, the woman I interviewed said that one of the early signs can be a speech delay. Now, she said that's not necessarily, doesn't mean that your child has dyslexia, but if your child has a speech delay, it's something to kind of keep an eye out for. And I'm wondering if, and you mentioned autism, is a speech delay indicative of any other of these learning differences? Um, there is definitely, there can be a correlation uh, between those things, because if you think about it, um, if a child is having problems with speech, it makes learning to read difficult because um, a lot of times they can hear you say a sound correctly, but they don't recognize that they're saying it wrong themselves. So then you know, we're trying to teach them how to read and they don't say a sound correctly. So then that can lead to, you know, delayed reading problems. And um, and so that can create a gamut. There definitely, I, I think, can be a correlation. We see a lot of um, kids who have been diagnosed as dyslexic who have had a history of speech um, problems, not all of them, um, but that is definitely could be a, a problem. Um, we also see a correlation between there's something else called apraxia of speech, and that's when a, a child's mouth just can't seem to form the sounds um, that you can see the child kind of in their mind. They know they want to get their mouth to do something, but they can't get their mouth to do it. So, um, when children have apraxia, sometimes they also have limb apraxia. And that is where parents would see that. And though it sounds like a big fancy word is that, you know, they, they had a really tough time crawling or they had a really hard time learning how to turn over even as an infant or learning to walk. Um, so when you see those motor delays, um, that can also be a sign, you know, that they're going to have speech delays. So it's the other way around in that case. Um, you know, it's it. They are all absolutely, in my opinion, related to each other because, again, the body is is one whole being. We don't segment all of them. The brain might have a section of it that's, um, you know, used for speech, but it requires other parts of it to work to to get all the functions to to process. I'd never really thought before about how having a speech delay could make it difficult to learn to read. That kind of, <laughs> but that makes so much sense now that you said it. Like if you're struggling to understand language or you're struggling to pronounce it correctly and then you are expected to break down words, that, um, that, that's really interesting information, Sarah. <laughs> true. Um, so what happens if you have a child that is diagnosed with some sort of speech delay? What happens next? You know, what's that process for catching up or, or what, what does that look like after the if diagnosis? If we're looking at um, a speech, it's a great question. Um, if we're looking at a speech delay, um, you know, generally speaking, the professional that assesses your child will look at the severity range. And we definitely do have a severity range um, based on all the, the data that we see to suggest um, you know, how far behind are they? Some, some kids are really not as far behind as they seem. Um, and maybe sometimes we have kids that are a little further behind than, than, um, maybe their parents thought they were. Um, usually typically speaking, a speech pathologist will recommend therapy once or twice a week in more severe cases, maybe three times a week. Um, and, I, I don't generally see more than that um, when we're just talking about a speech delay. Um, and I'll tell you why. I mean, there is a point of, and, and there has been research done on this to say, more isn't always better. I know that parents sometimes will panic like, well, they just need to have speech every day. Um, speech pathologists are not magicians. We're just um, well-educated on speech and language development. And so we try to come up with processes that work for a child and work with them intensively, usually for a half hour to an hour. But then, you know, we pass it off to the parents to say, this is what we did today. And the most important thing you can do is practice this with your child at home. 
Um, and I don't mean like in terms of, of course, if they're working on a sound, yes, you're going to have to sit down and drill and practice or do something like that. But just in terms of even if you're trying to get them to use sentences at home, um, I saw this a lot with my third child, which was he'd just get in line. So if I was giving his brother a drink and his sister a drink, it was sort of like me too. He didn't have to ask for anything, right? So because he was just there already. So but putting that expectation on on your kids to use their words, especially if you know that they have those words to say them, um, is really important in modeling for them. But so that that's really what, what usually would happen is that we would recommend um, intervention in, in the form of therapy. Um, generally speaking, when children are under the age of three in early intervention, that means you can have a therapist come to your home um, and work in a natural environment because that really does work best for the child and it's practical. Um, I did see in my experience, a lot of parents just wanted to leave us alone, you know, so I could do my thing. And that was the last thing I wanted them to do. I wanted them to come and see what I was doing because they could do it too. Um, and, and really it's just practice. The more that you can practice with your child and just really make it a habit, um, is, is really important. And I know I do get a lot of parents that say, oh, they're so sensitive, especially when they're a little older, they're so sensitive about me correcting them. So you just, you, you know, when your kids are older and I'm talking six and seven, because I know we got those parents listening to, to say, Hey, you know what? You just make an agreement with them. Hey, you know what? While we're having dinner or maybe while we're in the car, we're going to, we're going to practice speech and we're just going to go over the sounds and that'll just be your time. But, um, speech doesn't occur in a bubble. Um, so practice, practice, practice. Can you talk a little bit about this? Actually, is a question I was I was talking to my sister, uh, whose son is in speech therapy. I said that already, um, and I had said, "Hey, do you have any questions?" <laughs> I'm interviewing this speech and language pathologist, and she the question that she had asked me to ask you was she wanted to know a little bit more about you know what a kind of good speech session or a good speech and language pathologist looks like because she's felt a couple of times sitting in on those sessions that maybe the therapist that she had was chatting more to her and talking about her day than she was working with the child. So, so if you're a parent and your child's in speech, you know, what do you want to see, uh, in a session? Um, so I, you know, and I would definitely say one size doesn't fit all. Um, I think knowing what kind of person your child seems to respond to is really important um, because there are speech pathologists that are really like animated and lively and, and in your kid's face because, you know, your kid's high energy and they're going to get this stuff done. And then there are some kids that just need like a little bit more calm. And then, you know, I, I've had the kids like, I don't know how you're going to get them to sit down. Good luck with that. And you kind of have to have that calm but firm um, thing. What I would look for, obviously, um, First of all, you you want a, a clinically competent speech pathologist. You, know, you want to see that they have their CCC, which is a clinical competency certification um, that you um, are you have to go through a whole lot of, out of schooling and pass some rigorous exams to have that, and then you have to take continuing education to maintain that. Um, so the first thing I, I like to look and say is I want to make sure that my speech pathologist has their CCC, or at least what they would be, um, it might say they are a CFY, which means they're a clinical fellow. That basically just means they're in their first year of um, practicing paid therapy, I like to say, because I should emphasize that for two years prior to being a paid speech pathologist, I had to be a speech pathologist underneath somebody else's wing. Um, so you really, that that's the first thing. If anybody wants any information on that, um, the American Speech Language Hearing Association um, has a wealth of information on on that. They have uh, their websites uh, www.asha.org. Um, so that's that's the the background part. Um, certainly, it's important for a speech pathologist to be figuring out ways of engaging with your child. Um, I think it's important that they've asked the parent good questions about what does your child like? What do they not like? What are the difficult times for you? Getting that good background history. So I would want a speech pathologist that really took the time to ask me as a parent, um, you know, what makes my child tick? Um, because finding those motivation um, points is so important when you're doing therapy with a child. If you can't figure out how to engage with them, um, it's not going to be a successful session. Um, 
I think the other part of that is, yes, I agree with your sister that I don't want a speech pathologist chatting to me more than they're talking to my child, because um, while there should be that parent education, we usually um, incorporate a time between sessions to be able to talk to a parent about what we did. Did they have any questions? Um, and so kind of the things I would want a speech pathologist to say to me if I were a parent sitting on, in on a session um, would be to maybe explain why they were doing something. You know, like, well, yes, I know your son can do this puzzle, but the way I'm doing it, I want him to name every piece or describe the picture a little bit more. Um, and, you know, modeling for the parent how, you know, this would be better. We as parents, when our kids are learning to talk, get so excited that they're saying words, we start saying to them all the time, can you say ball? Can you say duck? Can you, this is red. Can you say red? And our, our kids' little brains can't process all that. All they keep hearing is, can you say? And they miss the last word. So just giving good modeling to a parent and providing opportunity um, when appropriate for a parent to participate in a session to say, look, I just did this. You can do it too. Give it a try. Um, because I think sometimes parents really think that they don't have the ability to do it when they do. Like I said, we don't have magical hands or magical brains. We just have the know-how. Um, how late can, we've talked a lot about a early um, mm -hmm. kind of identification, but how late can somebody kind of get admitted to speech um, therapy in school? I'm asking almost personally because my son, my youngest, my third child, to me was struggling a little bit with speech and then he um, accidentally lost his two front teeth. Mm -hmm. um, so now he's struggling even more. Like he really can't say L's because his teeth aren't there and he knows it. He knows that he struggles with those words. So kind of... You know, if you if you didn't identify uh, uh, an issue with your child younger, like how late can you um, get help? It, it's never too late to get help. Um, I I had a student that came to me. Um, she had been homeschooled, and um, it wasn't until she was technically in the seventh grade that. Um, her mom realized that wow, she really has struggled with her R's. So I mean, I've had I've had brothers who were 15 and 17 come to me to work on sounds um, that they just couldn't figure out how to get fixed. I see this a lot to what you're talking about, Jessica, with, um, with kids missing their teeth because it's so, I mean, especially, you know, starting in second grade and go to fourth grade and you start missing those two front teeth, everything, all the S's come out. I mean, they even made a Christmas song about it, yeah. right? So, um, and, and there's some validity to that, right? It's, but you can still teach placement for a sound, even if those teeth aren't there. So an L, for example, I mean, if a child is having a hard time with an L, the production of an L isn't contingent upon having your two front teeth. S, yes. So sounds that, that blow air, S's for sure are the big one. Of course, you're going to lose air that way. Um, but it doesn't mean you can't work on the placement for it. Um, so it's never too late. Um, and again, if, if it's something that you as a parent are saying, wow, you know, they, they really should know this by now, um, then I would absolutely ask your, your child's teacher um, or ask the therapist if they're in the building and you know who they are, you want, want to just talk to them. Um, the reason why a lot of times with these sounds, like you're talking, it's like, oh, I think they have trouble with that sound. Um, we don't look at them um, the same way in the school system as they might do at a private clinic. And I think that's another important thing for parents to know. There is a developmental set of norms we call of sound production. And school systems are pretty transparent about what their age levels are for addressing that sound in an academic environment. So what a private speech pathologist might recommend to work on might not be what a school-based speech pathologist would recommend to work on because school speech pathologists are always looking at, is it academically relevant? Whereas a private-based therapist is looking at just the contingency, is it, is it, is it normatively appropriate? Um, and I know that's a really hard thing for some people to process, like, well, why would they work it in private therapy, but not school therapy? Um, but in the school system, we do see a lot of kids qualify in the third, fourth, and fifth grade because you know, it seemed like they were getting the sound and then it just never fully developed. Interesting. I was going to talk to you about what kind of support parents could expect from the school. And I think you really, I love what you just said about in school, they're working to make sure to support that academic piece um, mm -hmm. and that there is two options, right? That you may right. receive some therapy through school and, or also you can seek some private therapy. 
That's right. Yeah. And, and you, uh, we have a lot of parents whose um, kids see the school speech pathologist, but then they also go and do private speech. And I think that there's benefits to both of them. A lot of times in the school system, um, your child is in a small group. Um, even in the middle school, most of my groups are two to three students. I have some that I do see one-on-one, but most of them, especially if they're all working on the same sound, we work in a group. And the benefit to that is you get to hear other people making the sounds that you're working on too. Um, you know, but then at the same time, well, that's beneficial. The benefits going, working on with a private therapist is your child's getting some one-on-one drill and practice time. And they may have, um, tools that are not available to your child in the school system, um, you know, just because of whatever budgetary reasons or there are things that aren't um, necessarily considered academically relevant. Well, let's move on and talk a little bit more now, you know, past identifying a delay and mm-hmm. talk about supporting speech development. And this could go for just a typical child, right? I think that there's probably some, you probably would have some great suggestions for for all of us, regardless of your child's speech ability, to help support development. So how can parents help support speech at home? So the biggest thing you can do, um, well, obviously, when you have your infant, talk to your infant all the time. Talk to them in, in simple sentences, even, you know, if it's mommy loves you or daddy loves you or see the doggy. Um, keep it short, sweet, and simple um, because their their brain is developing comprehension at the same time it's thinking about making sounds. So um, talking to your child all the time as they become um, toddlers, like say little people walking around, tell them what you're doing. Um, and it doesn't have to be really complicated. You know, mommy's cooking, um, you know, or, you know, sit down. You know, we're sitting. Um, if you see something on the television, um, if they're watching TV, that's, that's a huge thing. Talk about, don't, don't worry about what necessarily everybody's saying. Just like, keep it really basic. Name things on there. Say, I see ya, whatever it might be. Um, so those are, those are in terms of giving those good, short, basic speech models are really good. Um, you know, there's there's another thing in this day and age that I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about things that not just the parents should do, but what I would strongly encourage them to stop doing. And I see this a lot. Um, putting your child in front of a TV or um, giving them an iPad when they're eating. Not not a good idea. You spend that. I mean, we're all parents and we have our moments and we need we need sometimes like, oh, my gosh, I need a break because it's been that kind of day. I'm not talking about those occasions. I'm talking about the expectation and the routine. Um, you know, talk about what you're eating. Oh, you know, you're eating. I'm eating kind of those kinds of things. What are we eating? Um, and and that's a big deal because uh, technology is a wonderful thing and it certainly has a place in learning. Um, but expecting that um, videos and the television are going to teach your kids how to talk um, or pay attention even is really um, a misconception. Um, The other big thing I I see where I have parents saying, I just don't understand why they're not talking um, or they're really having some other issues is, um, I said, we've got this pacifier syndrome. I I see two and three-year-olds with pacifiers in their mouths. Um, and that really does not help speech development at all. And people ask me why your tongue is a very complex muscle. Um, it needs to move in a lot of different directions when, um, you're speaking, when you're a baby, you need your tongue to eat mostly. So, um, you know, it has a very distinct suckling pattern when, when your baby is an infant, um, the age of sippy cups didn't really help with the maturity of that either because you suck on a sippy cup a lot like you do a bottle. Um, but when children put binkies in their mouth or pacifiers, whatever you want to call them, it, it is certainly a soothing thing for them. That's why, you know, they, they have that suckling pattern. But what, what it really inhibits is it, it stops the mature patterns of your tongue from um, progressing. So um, that is definitely something as a parent I would strongly encourage. I mean, 12 months should always really be a marker, unless your child has a specific reason why they need one longer. Um, but I would try, and, and I will say, as I say this, I was as guilty as the next parent because we moved right when my second child was, was 12 months old. And 
I mean, just knowing how hard that was, I couldn't have dreamt of taking it away. So it took me until she was 14 months and we made a big deal out of it. We took them to the baby's room, um, you know, at her preschool, um, just to, to say, you know, you're a big girl, let's, let's move on with it. But that is something, those two things are so big in helping, um, children along, the more that you can really talk and engage with your child. And I'm not talking about treating them as a mini adult, but really like those, those just descriptive words as much as you can. And, um, there it's harder sometimes with boys and girls. I, I don't know why, um, that is, I just think it's gender stereotyping sometimes, but even if you're building blocks with, with your boy, you know, you can talk about what you're doing. We're building them up. We're knocking them down like this one's blue, that one's red. Um, anything you can do to add enrichment to their environment, the more words that they can get exposed to at an early age, is the better. I want to talk about more things that maybe we should or shouldn't do as a parent. Yes. <laughs> uh, because, and you talked about, you know, we have, we all have these words that our kids say that are adorable. Like uh, uh, my oldest used to call the washing machine, um, the washing schmeen. Uh-huh. And it's like, you want to hold on. They're just fabulous that they say these things yeah. and they're the things mm-hmm. we still talk about. Right. And our ki- my kids love to hear about, repeatedly they know exactly the words that they used to say funny but that's a conversation that we always have because they love hearing that about themselves and you did mention sort of like as a parent you kind of know the difference between something like that washing shmeen which is just not understanding the words versus maybe pronouncing something differently Uh um and what's that line between um allowing that or correcting that, or should, as parents, if I know that my kid's not saying uh, R's or L's correctly, and they're always making a mistake of that, should I start correcting that, or do I just, you know, leave that be and go to a speech therapist? You know, I, I think it's, 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 okay, so my daughter used to call horses forces. We thought this was the absolute most hysterical thing ever, that it was, and my other one called marshmallows, marshmallows, right? So, <laughs> um, and, and so, again, you want to hang on to this because they're just so adorable and like, like we're going to get her to say this word, hold on. I mean, you see YouTube videos on this about, like, you know, listen to what my kid says. Um, so, I think the first thing you do is you acknowledge what the child is going to say, because um, if you want to set up a situation for complete communication breakdown, um, you know, just keep telling the kids you don't understand them because they're going to get so frustrated they're not going to listen to you. So that is something not to do. Um, I think it's at a point, you know, there is that line that you as a parent can acknowledge. I think you're trying to say, you know, if he says washing, washing, what'd you say? Washing mean I said, oh, I think you're trying to say washing machine. I understood washing. Let's try machine and break it down. But it's like it, the less of a big deal you can make up about it, the better. Because again, we're, we're struggling with, you know, there are some kids that really take a hard line to being corrected all the time because they're already frustrated on people don't understand them. Um, so the first, the first line you can tackle, I know you don't have to be a speech pathologist to do this. Um, but usually I find, I mean, unless it's just one word and they keep saying it over and over again, you're like, I have no idea what they're saying. Um, you know, you can usually pick out one word that they're saying. They might put four words together. Um, and you say, maybe you caught the word bunny out of it. They have a pet bunny upstairs or, you know, a stuffed bunny. And you say, I just heard you say something about the bunny. Like, what about the bunny? And maybe they'll say it a different way. Or if they, even when they have that one word, you say, you know, can you take me and show me? Um, those are strategies parents can do. There's no harm in correcting your child. You know, you just never want to get to the point that you're shaming them. I mean, the, that it's not productive. I, I actually talk to even my middle schoolers and high schools about what, what are productive versus unproductive habits, right? We talk about this in all sorts of realms. Um, I tell parents the same thing. Productive habits are acknowledging your child is trying to talk and praising them, um, you know, for giving an effort for it. Um, but then also modeling the correct words for them. Now, this is very different than, you really have to think about this. If you know a child knows a word, I'm just going to go with the most obvious thing. Your kid wants a cookie. You know they can say cookie. And they just start like banging on the closet or pointing and they're going, eh, and they're whining. Like, okay, like, is my kid having a temper tantrum just because he wants a cookie? Or like, is it because like he can't say it? Well, no, I know he can say it. And then you can say, I understand you want a cookie. 
you tell mommy cookie. And you can say it, cookie, and like do something like that, okay? As opposed to they're pointing to something and they're frustrated and you pretty much were, they don't know what the word is. I mean, that's a good time to model what what that word is. Um, but what you never want to get into the game with your child. And, and it is a fine line when you really think your kid has a speech delay. Like, do they know the word or are they just having a toddler time, right? Um, you don't want to play in that that. So the parent guessing game of pulling 16 things out of the refrigerator because you don't know what your kid wants. Um, that, that has nothing to do with speech and language development. A lot of times that just happens to be that they think what they want is in the refrigerator when it's really in the pantry. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's a tough line, but, um, but it is, it is perfectly fine for you to correct your child, um, while still acknowledging that they are trying to say a word. What about, I have a, my uh, friend um, who, who kind of wanted some tips on if you've, if you've got a child with a speech delay and is getting some therapy and they're about to transition into kindergarten. So kind of going from this environment where they're at home, it's quiet, they have a lot of time to work on this stuff, and then transitioning into public school. Any tips to making that transition for somebody who already has got a speech delay? Sure. Well, the first thing I would tell you is that once your child turns three years of age, um, even if you have private speech therapy, um, you can refer them into the school system um, to get what we call just school-based speech therapy. So they can actually start that at the age of three. Um, the advantage to that, and I know some parents really um, worry about their child being labeled, um, but the advantage to that is that you can get them in a situation where you might still be having private therapy, but you also then are exposing your child to their home school. Um, there are some cases if your child goes to preschool that the um, school-based therapist will come there, but you're, you're giving the child a chance to get familiar with going to speech therapy in, in their public school. Um, and you can start that as early as three. If you choose not to, that's absolutely fine. Um, in kindergarten, generally speaking, um, the speech pathologists do what we call a kindergarten roundup, where we screen all the students to see if there's anyone that really stands out. Um, and this may be a, a situation, like I mentioned to you earlier, where they might, you know, be eligible for speech therapy outside of the school system, but they're they're not quite at the severity level that they would need it inside school at this point. Um, but certainly, if you, as a parent, want to seek services for your child within the school system, you make that known right when you're registering them for school. You know, yes, my, my child gets speech therapy um, now for a speech delay. Um, so that will allow them to let the people who are the professionals in the building know that this is somebody that they need to pay particular attention to. In some cases, the speech pathologist at the school might actually already call you and ask you if you have any testing already done, um, you know, which might make it um, easier for you to get in there. But it's certainly um, easier if you think your child is going to need speech therapy to help them catch up on their sounds, uh, you know, for a little bit longer to do it before they're starting kindergarten. Great. Uh, you had mentioned a website to check out um, for qualifications. Any other resources that parents should check out? Um, you know, it's there are a lot of um, really great websites that are out there. Um, one of them is called speakingofspeech.com. Um, there are, I, gosh, I wish, you know, I should have written them all down, Jessica. But, um, <laughs> but I will say, if you really just Google and, or Pinterest, there are a lot of great things pinned up on Pinterest. If your child needs to work on a specific sound, go ahead and get on Google, get on Pinterest, and put that in, you know, practicing the S sound or whatever it might be. Um, and there are a lot of really good um, things that come up on there. There's another really good um, place for resources, teacherspayteachers.org. It's not just for um, teaching materials. There's a lot of speech-language pathology materials on there. Um, but I, the reason why I, I send a lot of people to the ASHA website is because they have vetted everybody on their website. So if you're looking for a specific um, discipline or you're looking for a speech pathologist, everybody that they have listed on their site, they've vetted. So you know that they have their competencies to work with you. Um, there are a lot of parent support um, sites, um, Facebook especially, um, you know, if you just type in keywords. Um, but those are really the places I go to um, 
as a professional. Um, the other thing, the nice thing that ASHA has on their website is they have a lot of one-page information sheets. So if your child is diagnosed with something specific, it could be um, apraxia of speech, let's just say. Or um, if your child has another, or sort of like your child has Down syndrome and you're wondering what their speech norms are. There are a lot of um, things out there through our professional organization's website that will give you a, a one-page or two-page quick thing to do, give you examples um, for games you can play with your toddler to help promote speech development, um, any of those kinds of things. Uh, Sarah, awesome. It has been great talking to you. If people want to find out more information, um, how can they get in touch with you? Um, you can always contact me. I have um, my email address is Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, V-S-L-P, at gmail.com. Um, you can also look me up on LinkedIn. Um, I'm under Sarah Oakton Armstrong. It's oak like a tree, den like a living room, Armstrong. Um, and a lot of my contact information is on there. Um, and I'm always happy to um, answer questions. If anybody has a specific question to their child or they need a resource, um, I do live in the state of Georgia now, but I have lived up and down the East Coast. And I do have a lot of um, contacts and resources, um, especially on, on this side of the um, the continent. But I also do have other people across there that I could perhaps put you in touch with if you had a specific um, question or a need for your child. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah. This has been really interesting. Well, I'm glad I I hopefully have provided some uh, insight for people. Um, Hopefully I've provided more answers than questions. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. You can find the show notes at www.boysbuiltbetter.com. And while you're listening, make sure you subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Until next time.